Hi there, I'm Tom Jackson. And I'm Gabriella Mulligan. And welcome to the third episode of this four-part podcast series digging into the African venture capital space, brought to you in partnership with Corona Capital, 10X Entrepreneur, Catalyst Fund and Knife Capital. We've been busy discussing all things VC. In episode one, we defined what venture is, how its business model works and what an investor does all day. And in episode two, we covered how an investment actually gets done and the various ways in which investors can exit a startup and make a return. Now, in episode three, we will cover the different ways in which startups and venture capitalists work together once the deal is done, whether a VC can interfere too much and why startups need to do their due diligence on their investors just as much as investors need to do it on them. Once again, many thanks to our partners, Corona Capital, Tenex Entrepreneur, Catalyst Fund and Knife Capital, and we hope you enjoy the episode. In the last episode, we talked about how VC deals get done and what investors are ultimately looking to achieve from backing your startup. But how do you actually go about working with this new person in your life? The term founder-friendly is much used these days, but are all VCs this way? There are definitely VCs that are not founder-friendly and VCs that are much more founder-friendly. And uh, you'll typically find the VCs that are not founder-friendly are um, mercenary financiers. So... They've got a background in finance. They had never built a company before. They um, don't know what it is to build a company. They know how to structure deals and to do deals. And furthermore, they're ruthless. And um, so all they care about is maximizing outcomes for themselves. And actually, they just don't care about outcomes for other people. Um, and, and, and they're plentiful. Um, that they're, you know, they're out there in plenty numbers. That was Jason Goldberg from 10X Entrepreneur. Jason does say, however, that plenty of VCs are your friend and that ultimately it comes down to being a good human. There are founder-friendly VCs who typically have, you know, they're founders themselves and now they're VCs, but they've got a background scaling companies and, and they're good human beings. And the good human beings part means that they recognize they only really succeed if they help their founders succeed. And they really want to sincerely help their founders succeed. Um, and so they make compromises to help their founders succeed. So that, that's one of two key aspects of being founder-friendly. Good humans uh, care about founders, make compromises, you know, really set founders up to do well. Um, and the second key component of being founder-friendly from this lens perspective is they know what it is to build a business from the ground up. And so they do things differently to financiers. Um, they, they create room for founders to operate in their mess and to optimize against how things work in the real world. Um, whereas, you know, um, uh, let's call it specialist financiers with no operating background, they typically operate against a classic, you know, uh, corporate governance framework of quarterly quarterly reports and, you know, KPIs and, um, you know, um, Hardcore governance and um, and and uh, most of that has has good in it, but it's just inappropriate at many stages in a VC's life. And and when they don't know how to get the balance right, um, that makes them very founder unfriendly. Quite often, how friendly or unfriendly a VC is is in the terms. There are ways to invest. There are ways to negotiate. Um, one is certainly not trying to trick a founder into signing a term that they didn't quite understand, you know, that always bites back. So I'm very proud of our industry as a whole in terms of how we, how we invest, um, you know, just in terms of, of trying to 
to just uphold the principles of being a good partner. That was Kiet Van Sale from Knife Capital. Monica Brand Engel of Corona Capital agrees there is more to founder friendly than just a handy marketing phrase. I do think, especially venture firms that are operator-led and operator-driven like Quona, it is real. Maybe what I would say and maybe where the question comes from is that I think there are authentic VCs and ones that are really just there to make money. And of course, everyone in business wants to make money. But I do think there are people for whom it's a means to an end and it's others for whom it's an end in itself. For Quona, we are about building phenomenal companies. We want to have in our portfolio leaders of the category and defining fintechs that will define the financial service system in the future. And that's what gets us up in the morning. That's what drives our every action. And so the money-making is part of that process. But again, I think for others, people are motivated by different things. Mylise Carraro from Catalyst Fund says ultimately what's considered founder-friendly or not comes down to the entrepreneur. What being founder-friendly really means, and to us at the Catalyst Fund, um, is offering, is living that value in both your investment terms um, that need to make sure that it's actually entrepreneurs that are going to lead their companies in the long term um, and not end up in a situation where actually the founders um, have less of an ownership stake than all of the investors in their cap table. And also, um, it means offering value beyond capital. So portfolio support networks, our venture building support is really our unique differentiator. You actually can't find, I think, the level of depth that we offer um, in many other funds. Um, And it also means putting the teams first. So it's important to me when you say you're funder friendly to actually take a team view of the startups that you're supporting and not just work, for example, with the CEO or the founders uh, at large. And our venture building uh, work, for example, does connect specific expertise with the senior leadership team at our portfolio companies. So we have various functions that everybody can benefit from at large within the startup companies. Um, And so we connect, for example, our senior product manager with the head of product. We connect our data science expert with a a data scientist and the startup, or marketing head with the head of marketing or growth, and so on. And that is critical in order to ensure that the whole team benefits and you're actually offering value beyond just having strategic conversations with the CEO. Monica says something as simple as where the VC is based and therefore what its context is can be of help to startups. We're in market. So the first and foremost is being there. So being there when there's a difficult problem, being there when you need capital, being there when you need an introduction. So I think there's one, it's the idea of being there. And I think being there locally is one part of how we're different. I think second way is being focused. So we are a fintech only VC. We do one thing and that's emerging market fintech. And even both those words tell you something. We don't do developed markets. We only do emerging. And we don't do anything other kind of tech except for financial technology. And so I think that also um, plays into why founders do come to us and why even our co-investors bring us into deals. At the end of the day, the best reviews of how friendly or otherwise a VC is will come from first-time founders. What I would be looking for is VCs who... When you phone other first-time founders, in other words, people who are building a company for the first time, raising capital for the first time, but they're now like five years down the track and, you know, they, they've been around a while. They've raised three or four rounds of capital. But at the beginning of the journey, they were frankly, you know, um, 
uh, really wet behind the ears. And and when you ask them about whether their VCs were founder friendly, they're like, these guys are amazing. Um, and and you know you shouldn't believe everything every entrepreneur tells you because frankly, uh, you know as someone who s- sits on both sides of those tables, I am an entrepreneur and I you know have been a VC for many years. I'll tell you most most entrepreneurs are really bad badly behaved and actually answer you know a lot of the time they'll answer this question based on childish you know um, expectations as opposed to reality. Um, but still, you know, if you ask enough entrepreneurs, you'll get a sense of which VCs are, are, are founder friendly. That was Jason, who says entrepreneurs in general just have to realise that VC as a thing is not founder friendly. If, you know, founder friendly to you means I can keep running the company the way I want, um, then no form of VC is really founder friendly. Um, you know, venture capital should change the way that the company runs. Um, and should change the day job of the founders um, materially from before that point in time. And and if they're good VCs, then those changes will be good and necessary for the company. Uh, But if you're not expecting or wanting that, then, you know, frankly, no VC is founder friendly. Kiet says it's important to strike the right balance as a VC when it comes to engaging with your portfolio or prospective portfolio companies. You can't always be too founder friendly because you you have your own in investors and um, and business model. You can also not be founder unfriendly because then you know founders talk and you you certainly don't want to attract um, the the reputation of of not being reasonable. Given all that, then exactly how helpful should entrepreneurs expect their VC to be? Jason says they should have low expectations. A healthy expectation of an entrepreneur. Let's start here. A healthy expectation of an entrepreneur. Is is to have no help from their VCs. That would be a healthy expectation. It's not always true, and in fact, it's often not true. But it's a healthy expectation. You should not expect your VCs to be a key actor in your success, other than bringing capital. But when they do help, VC partners can be very valuable indeed. Many VCs are actually really useful in in enabling you to open doors. You know, so so you'll get more key meetings with CEOs and multinationals, sometimes for sales, sometimes for strategic partnerships, sometimes for channel partnerships, sometimes for um, you know exits and so forth, because of the VCs, because of their networks, their reputations, um, and I'd say this is the most realistic expectation above zero to have, because good VCs typically are well regarded networked and want to uh, offer this sort of help. But what VCs are not is they're not operators and that you should not have any expectation they're going to get involved in your business. They're going to be part of your sales team um, or otherwise, you know, invest a lot of man hours in in unlocking the growth of your company. There are some who are active, but most you should expect them to open doors to be a you know, soundboard, to really influence and shape your, your strategy together with you. Um, they see patterns, they understand your marketplace um, often better than you do from a macro perspective. And they're able to help you think about things like business model and pricing and um, a whole lot of things you just haven't had to master before, and, and they have. And so all of that is valuable, um, and a good VC will bring those things to the table. It's important then that founders are to some degree teachable and can learn from their investors. 
but can a VC ever be too interfering? Monica says yes and uses a mum analogy. I'm a mom, so I'll say it from that perspective. I think sometimes the way parents can be helicopter parents and over-interfere, I definitely think every vent- any venture capitalist who says they hadn't crossed a line would be lying. And they cross the line because they care. I don't think they're control freaks or think they know how to do it better. I think they want to help. But at, like any true mentor or any good parent knows, the potential of learning by making your own mistakes and learning by taking risks is something you should never interfere with. So you like to make new mistakes and not the same mistakes. So we do sometimes lobby harder when we see someone maybe about to hit a wall and thinking there might be something we can do to avoid that pain. But I do think there's real value for sometimes even when there's resistance to say, okay, you put your argument out there, you do your best shot, and I think it's okay if they disagree. And even if it means there's no I told you so's, there's no shoulds, we're all learning on this together. So startups need to make sure they get their relationship with their VCs right, as a post-funding startup is very different to a pre-funding one. So what changes after you've raised? Here's Jason. If you're going from having zero outside investment to having outside investment for the first time, typically what changes now is accountability to outsiders. Um, you know, you're always accountable to customers and accountable to staff and accountable to your, you know, management team or your, your founding team. But out, accountability to outsiders starts to become a real thing. And that means time in, you know, board, board meetings and discussions and depending on how formal and how frequent that is, you know, reports and so on. So, so time spent on governance, you're going to lose time. Monica says having someone else, an external actor, actively engaged in your business can be a big readjustment. I think one is that there's someone else around the table. And I think sometimes founders, quite rightfully so, feel like they have to have all the answers and feel like they have to do it all themselves. In fact, we often say a CEO of a startup is a COE, chief of everything. And I think the first step is to realize there's someone in there really willing to go shoulder to shoulder next to you and help you in the next and kind of move that next mountain. So I think it's the first adjustment is just realizing that it doesn't show that you're weak or don't know or not capable to bring someone uh, to help you out. It just shows that you've got a bigger mountain to climb. I do think there's also sometimes formalities. Like I do think we do, we are an institution back VC ourselves. And so there are certain things we ask for in writing and through formal governance approaches. But I think the biggest step is actually just creating space that you don't have to do it all yourself. Jason says founders need to make sure they understand what rights each of their investors has from the get-go. Entrepreneurs should educate themselves on corporate governance. So they should understand the difference between a shareholder hat, the rights and obligations of a shareholder, um, a board hat, the, the, the rights and obligations of a, a member of the board of directors, and a management hat. So as a founder, you typically wear all three hats. You, you are a shareholder, you're a director, and you're a manager. But in each conversation, you need to wear the right hat. And, um, and a, a, a VC that is sitting on the board, having a board conversation where it's a board decision, and they disagree with you, is, is not interfering. They, they're doing their job as a board member. Um, and, and so you should come into that meeting um, 
with a clear understanding of the governance around the discussions that are going to be had. How should decisions on these issues be made? And, um, and what vote do I have and who else has a vote? And, um, and then also, um, you know, uh, grow in, uh, you know, good collaborative decision-making. So understand how decisions are made amongst, amongst uh, let's call it a, a committee of decision-makers who come from different perspectives. Some are management, some are not. Um, some have expertise on the topic, some don't. And yet we all have to um, explore this issue and make a decision together. And you need to become an expert at, as a founder at leading those processes towards the best outcome. My lease says investors, by definition, push entrepreneurs more than perhaps they have been pushed in the past. We do uh, often push to see growth within a very short time frame. Um, you do push entrepreneurs to achieve certain KPIs, um, also in a very short time frame. And uh, it does actually add pressure to the entrepreneurs in reaching those targets. And, and sometimes uh, that is a, a type of pressure that they did not have before taking uh, VC capital on board. So I think it's important uh, as a founder to understand, first and foremost, does my business model need venture capital? Are there other kinds of capital that are actually the right ones for me? Do I have the fundamentals and the team in place to um, bear the pressure that some uh, venture capitalists might add to the way I run my business and the targets I need to reach? Um, and am I convinced that this is actually the way to scale this business and you know, get to an exit or um, you know, take, it, take it to the next level to operate forever? Not every business has to exit. So answering those questions first um, is, is critical not to be taken by surprise uh, and, and therefore then fail because you were not anticipating um, that change that is, I think, bound to come where you take in VC dollars. Kiat agrees how a business runs has to change once it takes on those VC dollars. For many businesses, doing so is just not the right thing to do. It certainly definitely means you need to understand the VC's timeframes, how long they're going to be that partner, because there is an expectation of some form of liquidity, um, some lo loss of control. You know, you, you can't suddenly just approve things with, with you know, there are some, some limits and... So I think it's it's good governance, all of these things, as you build a growing business. But um, certainly, it it does change things in in how a business is, is operates and um, and what they aim for. So for some businesses, it's fantastic; it's exactly what they need. But I can also admit that for some businesses, they should definitely not be have a VC as a, as a partner because it could destroy the business by by driving the wrong metrics. That's why it's so important you really know and understand the different goals and styles of the VCs that are investing in your business, which essentially means some form of due diligence is also necessary on the startup side. Jason says this is vital, yet most founders don't actually do it for various reasons. If a husband wants to make sure that they pick the right wife, how important is it for the wife to make sure she picks a good husband? Um, you know, both parties are making a life-changing decision. And... Um, and that's at very high risk of most likely going wrong. And so both should absolutely do their due diligence. I, I think that um, the reason why most founders don't do this, in my experience, is firstly because they've just never built a company and raised capital before, so they just don't know what lies ahead. Secondly, because they're a hell of a busy already, and this is just something that seems um, less important and urgent than the other things they're already doing. 
And thirdly, and maybe most importantly, because often funded startups land up with only one option. And so it's a bit academic. You know, either we have no future or we take on this VC round. Mylise also uses the marriage metaphor. Startups should do as much due diligence on their investors as investors are doing due diligence on them because it is a long-term relationship. You are not marrying someone uh, for a year or two. Like when you when you enter a marriage, like you ideally think of it as as a lifetime commitment. And in this case, similarly, you know, you are thinking about a longer term commitment that can be many, many years. Um, so you need to choose carefully and choose wisely. And one of the things that um, I think entrepreneurs need to look for, again, is the value that those investors can offer beyond just dollars, um, what networks they have, um, what doors they can open, what specific expertise they bring to the table, how well are they going to work with other investors uh, in the cap table, uh, because also having good board dynamics and good relationships between investors is critical not to add undue pressure on the founders who are already stressed out about running their business. So for all these reasons, um, I think founders have to be their investors for sure. Monica is in agreement that founders need to do their own due diligence. There is no better way than talking to other founders. Diligence should be two-way. And I think Quona has always been strongest. And in fact, the way we're known is through word of mouth. I think you should ask other founders what it's like to have Quona in the cap table, what it's like to have Quona around the board table. And I think that is a very instructive way to know if you want to build a relationship with this investor. Jason says it's a good idea, if possible, for founders to ensure they have more than one option when it comes to funding. Having options, firstly, enables you to pick the best VC uh, of those that are interested. But secondly, enables you to get better terms um, and take out some of you know the, the more risky um, powers and rights uh, that VCs have. And that gives you more room to make the relationship work as a startup. But should a startup care who a GP's LPs are? Monica says yes. I would want to know, and it's not so much that there's some untoward characters. It's more on, is there a conflict of interest? Like you have a strategic in your cap table, you might be pushing a certain direction versus not. So I would more want to know, you know, both positively, what are the resources and networks that that other LP, which is what the investor or venture firm is called, could be, or are there conflicts of interest that I just want to be aware of? It doesn't mean that they can't be positive as well, but you just want to be aware um, and I, again, I would say it's always good to know where the money comes from. So with startups doing all this due diligence, wanting to give themselves options, and with the African VC space becoming increasingly competitive, how do VC firms then go about setting themselves apart and becoming a preferred option? Often, this is a natural event, says Jason. In most ecosystems, the, the cream tends to, tends to rise to the top in terms of VCs, and, and, and the top VCs have a reputation they generally have a reputation as the most desirable VCs for a reason. That reason, it tends to be related to how they help you succeed. Um, and, and sometimes they're just a trusted, known entity, you know, with a long track record as a successful VC. And that counts, that, that, that's a proxy for a lot of different things you're looking for in the relationship. And sometimes it's something specific, like they, they have two or three particular corporate relationships that are very strong. Maybe they're the, the top fintech VC with you know relationships at a, at a C-suite level with every bank and every major insurance player 
and they're able to get the right meetings and they're able to, you know, negotiate the right strategic, you know, partnerships. Um, and so anyway, their reputation precedes them and, and that sets them apart. Um, and, and that is what you should try and do, obviously, as a VC. As a VC, you should try and be clear on your superpowers, how you, you know, what kind of entrepreneurs are you most positioned to help succeed at a large scale, and then build your brand and your portfolio around that. And then those kind of entrepreneurs should, you know, generally disproportionately come to you. Monica says, first and foremost, VCs should specialize, figure out what they're good at and stick to it. So we are fintech for inclusion. That's our specialization. We're emerging markets. We're domain experts in that area and we specialize and we want to go deep in an area. So when we differentiate is that there is no one on the planet that I would say who knows more globally about emerging market fintech than we do. And again, I don't mean there are definitely phenomenal fintech investors out there. There are definitely phenomenal global investors out there. But again, the idea of emerging market fintech at the mass market level, that's all we do. We have 55 portfolio companies uh, and close to 600 million assets under management. And so that really will build up a depth of expertise that, again, I think is hard to rival. That's number one. Number two, I think thinking about not just the size of your fund, but where does that money come from? So we're happy to say we have a very diverse cap table. We have mostly institutional investors. We also have a lot of local financial service and technology companies regionally who back us, as well as very successful fintech entrepreneurs who are in our cap table. So I think knowing where your money comes from also helps the entrepreneur know, like, okay, that not only is that a validation of our thesis, but also who are the other resources, other networks I can tap into to really help my business go. The last thing I would say is who are the other portfolio companies? Because I think looking at who else is in your portfolio will also give the fintech an idea of like, huh, is that the kind, those are the kind of companies I want to be? Do I look, am I inspired by those, those companies or am I, uh, am I scratching my head when I look at that? Kia thinks VCs should engender trust, add value, and ultimately prove their worth. Each VC has its has its game. I think from a knife capital perspective, you know, we look at at, at two elements that we foster, um, specifically around the value chain approach. So, we, so we spend you know quite a bit of time making sure that we can help an, an entrepreneur at, at different stages of its business, and we don't just end at Series A. We now have a Series B fund. We have a, an accelerator grindstone at the earlier earlier stages so that we that we do that and then also if we reject a business we try and at least if it's a good business and for whatever reason we can't invest in it to refer that business to some of the other vcs in the industry and vice versa that really builds um you know future trust and that entrepreneur comes back to you and then differentiator from our side is the is exits you know i think it's easy to invest is if you if you can raise the capital you will never know whether that was the right valuation, um, whether it was the right portfolio to invest in until you get to the other side. So, um, And each time we go through an exit, we learn a different trick or two, which we think, oh, I wish we knew this, or we built this into the, into the, or we built the business differently, we would have got um, a higher valuation for the entrepreneur and for ourselves. So, so we, yeah, the, each exit is for us very important because it helps us build that cycle. But yeah, so you differentiate via different ways, but there's definitely uh, an, an element of, of differentiation going on. There's lots of money chasing some of the similar deals and the good entrepreneurs can rightly choose. And I, I love that.
a nice note on which to end there. And indeed, African entrepreneurs certainly now have more options than ever before when it comes to where their next round is coming from. But once that round is raised, your business does change. And we hope this episode has shed some light on the potential for investor startup dynamics post-deal. Next week, in the final episode of this series, we'll dig a little deeper into venture capitalists as people and what makes them tick. We'll discuss what makes a good VC, their backgrounds, motivations, and the issue of diversity in the space. In the meantime, please catch up on the previous two episodes available on all podcasting platforms and join me in thanking our partners, Corona Capital, Tenex Entrepreneur, Catalyst Fund and Knife Capital. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Thank you.